0: following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore, for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz This morning we're in Exodus chapter 12, so I want to invite you to turn there, and as you're turning there, let me just set this all up with a bit of context. Uh, Last week we talked about the plagues, we began talking about the plagues that God brought upon uh, the, the land of Egypt, ten plagues in total, we talked about nine of them last week, the first nine plagues, and those of you that were here, you might remember we talked about those plagues as acts of God's judgment, but not just judgment upon Egypt, acts of God's judgment upon the gods of Egypt, so God was revealing how all of these deities, so-called deities that the Egyptians worshipped, they were just false gods. They were no gods at all. And they were being judged by the power of Yahweh because many of the plagues correspond to uh, gods of Egypt. And so God's bringing judgment upon the gods of Egypt and unmasking them as false gods. And then at the same time, the plagues tell the story of creation working backwards. That's really the most important uh, way to see the plagues is that God is undoing creation through the plagues. He's reverting creation back to chaos. He's turning light back into darkness. He's turning human flourishing into human chaos. He's turning the whole story back until you get to darkness, back to day one of creation. He's undone the whole thing so that he can then bring new creation. He can start again, start the whole project again, as a, in a sense, through Moses and through the Israelites. So the plagues are a judgment in which God tells the story of creation backwards, and that's a helpful way to think about them. So this morning, we are coming to the final plague that God brought upon Egypt, the plague of the firstborn, firstborn children and firstborn animals in Egypt whose lives are taken. It's the most intense of the plagues. It's uh, the most severe of the plagues. It all really builds to a climax with this. And this is the the last thing. This is the plague that finally gets Pharaoh to a point where he's willing to let the Israelites go. This is the final straw for him. And this is what leads him to drive them out of Egypt. In the middle of the night, it all happens on this one dramatic night in Egypt. So we'll read this uh, story, or at least some of it. The story spans across chapter 11 and 12 of Exodus. We'll focus on chapter 12 today. And the story is intermingled with the story of Passover. So I'll read a couple of sections from chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire, with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some of it is left until morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when I see the blood I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Then jump down to verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go, and also bless me. So this is a pretty severe story. It's, it's a bit of a disturbing story, makes us uncomfortable perhaps. It's one of those parts in the Bible that we get a little bit squeamish about, not just because of all the blood, but because here God is implicated in taking human lives. And that's never comfortable. It's never easy for us to explain um, it's maybe one of those parts we wish just wasn't there and it can be a little bit embarrassing for us. And as someone pointed out to me this week, it's not just the issue of God taking human lives, but if you're big on animal rights, uh, you'll be offended by this as well because God also takes the life of the firstborn livestock uh, in Egypt. So no one and nothing is spared and there's pretty much something to offend everybody in this passage. So don't worry, it's, it's equal offending this morning. Uh, so this is, a, this is a dramatic story Uh, It's an uncomfortable story, and that is why it makes it particularly important that we place the story in the context of the whole narrative of Scripture and understand its meaning. And the way to understand the story of this plague is to look at the way the story is told. It starts off in chapter 11. God tells Moses that he's going to do this. He's going to bring this plague. And then at the end of chapter 12, he does it, and it happens. But in between, there's a whole section which is completely different and seems to sort of disconnect a little bit with the rest of it. Seems like a slightly strange place for this to be. It's the instructions for this meal called the Passover meal. And it's put right in the middle of the story. So you get this dramatic story being told, but then the story, the flow of the action is interrupted and the story is slowed right down because God has put this instructions about a dinner meal right in the middle of the story. And this is the way he's designed it. This is the way the author has planned this, because the meal itself, the Passover meal, explains the plague on the firstborn. It interprets that event. So these two things need to be read together, and that's why they're written together. Now, we've got a little Passover meal going on here this morning. This lovely little recreation... Of the uh, Passover meal, thanks to a few different people in the church, I believe that this lamb is going to be the Devonshire family Sunday roast today. So I'm not actually going to touch it, um, but we're just going to admire it from a distance. But this is the Passover meal. It's a bit like the Passover that the Israelites would have eaten. It was a very simple meal. I only had three things. The lamb, the roast lamb, bitter herbs, and the unleavened bread, which for us is a tortilla. <laughs> That's the unleavened bread that we've got. And this was the meal that the Israelites sat around and ate that night as the Lord passed over Egypt. And the meal contains everything that you need to know for understanding that event. The most important thing about the meal is the lamb. And the most important thing about the lamb is not actually the meat of the lamb, but the blood of the lamb. Obviously that wasn't eaten, but the blood was really the most important part of the whole Passover night. The blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the door frames of the houses. So, as you're eating the Passover meal, the blood is there on your home, covering you and protecting you. You might be a little bit squeamish. Anyone a little bit squeamish about blood, talking about blood? I'm going to talk about blood for a couple of minutes, okay? So, if you need to pop your earplugs in at this point, that's okay. Uh, blood is, I would say, the most important image in the Bible across Old and New Testament. It is the most important metaphor for understanding the story of Scripture. So, it's worth just unpacking that a little bit. Uh, The blood of the lamb. Blood symbolizes life. Most basic level, that's where you start. Blood symbolizes life. Leviticus says the life of a creature is in its blood. So blood gives us life. It enables us to live and to function. Blood equals life. That's simple enough, right? But under particular circumstances in the Bible, only at God's choosing, blood could also be used as a sacrifice. And that's what's happening here. In some situations, the blood of an animal could be used as a sacrifice. And in those situations, blood took on particular meaning. What would happen then is that the animal was killed, its blood was shed, which obviously meant death for the animal. But through its death, life would flow to the worshiper. Life would flow to another, to a person. So death happens, but life is transferred to a person. It's usually done... Not always, but usually in a situation where the person would otherwise experience death. The person's done something that would incur death or that they're bearing some guilt or it's a situation where death would come to a family or a person. But instead of death coming to this family or this person, a sacrifice is made, a blood sacrifice is made and the life is transferred to this person. The animal dies; life is transferred. Now there's a real mystery to this. We don't know exactly how the mechanics work. It's not that the life of the lamb itself gets passed over to this person so that you inherit a lamb life or a goat life. It's, it's not quite that specific, but it's that somehow in the providence of God, he allows this death of this animal to be sufficient for the death of this person. And so that life then is transferred and the life of the person or the family is protected. That's what's happening on the night of Passover. The Passover lamb is specifically described as a sacrifice. And that means the blood has special significance. The blood covers the door frames of the house. And as God passes over the land of Egypt, wherever there is no blood on the door frames, God sends his angel, the angel's called the destroyer in this case, sends this angel of death into the home that doesn't have the blood on the door frames and the life of that firstborn child is taken, boy or girl, the life of the firstborn is taken. But when God comes to a home that has the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorposts of that home, God sees the blood and he passes over that home. That's where the word Passover comes from. He passes over that home, he looks at that home and he sees death has already come to this home through the lamb. Death has already visited this home, and God decrees that death is sufficient. He, he, he providentially decreed, he didn't have to, but God decides that death is sufficient, the death of that lamb, and therefore life flows to the family. Life flows from the blood of the lamb to this family, and the boy or girl, the baby, is protected. The child is protected. Life is given to that family. That's how sacrifice works. And that's the basis of the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Same principle. Death happens and life is released into the one offering the sacrifice to cover over sin and enable that person to continue living and standing and relating to God as part of the community of Israel. So the Israelite families are having this meal in their home. And they're wondering when and if God is going to pass over their home and bring this judgment and how this is going to happen and they're holding their kids close to them as you can imagine and it must have been a pretty nerve-wracking kind of night just wondering how this is going to happen and, and being incredibly grateful for this provision God's provided and then as they're waiting and as they're watching they're sharing a meal they're having this Passover meal they're eating the meat of the lamb reminding them of the sacrifice that's been made they're also eating these bitter herbs and most people think the bitter herbs are a reminder of Israel's bitter service in Egypt. The slavery they experienced. The oppression they experienced under Egypt. And they're taking these herbs and it just this bitter taste just kept a constant reminder of how bad life was in Egypt. So they would be always reminded of that they've been freed from something that was awful. It's what the bitter herbs represent. And then the unleavened bread... This was kind of a symbol in advance because when Pharaoh finally says, all right, you can go, he drives them out. They leave on the same night. It's a real rush. And the the only thing families have time to grab food-wise is dough. So they grab the dough. They make bread later, but it doesn't have yeast in it. And so they eat unleavened bread. And it reminds them of their hasty departure from from Egypt, that it happened quickly, that they didn't have much time. And that's what the unleavened bread represents. So they have this Passover meal. And the Passover was established in Israel as an annual celebration. So the first Passover happens on the night that the Israelites are freed from Egypt. But then every year after that, it continued to be observed. So one year after Israel was released from Egypt, they're still wandering around in the desert, in the Sinai desert, and they celebrate Passover. And I guess they would have taken a lamb and slaughtered it, and put the blood on the door frames of their tents. They were living in tents at that stage. And they got the lamb meat, and they ate it with the herbs and the bread, and they celebrated this Passover to remind them that God had done this incredible thing, bringing them out of Egypt. And and God knew that a meal like this was a powerful reminder, not just telling the story, not just talking about it, but actually taking these physical emblems and ingesting this food was one of the most powerful ways of remembering what God had done for them and coming back and grounding themselves in this great story of freedom, this great story of deliverance and sacrifice on their behalf that God had provided for. And so from then on, Passover continued to become an annual tradition. Before we get to that, though, come back to this first night. So Passover happens. The angel of the Lord goes through Egypt, strikes down the firstborn in each family and not just Human families, but animals as well. No distinction made. Right through the class system of Egypt, so the text tells us, from Pharaoh's firstborn child right down to the firstborn of an Egyptian prisoner or the firstborn of an Egyptian servant. They were all affected, they all lost their firstborn. And the Egyptians get up in the middle of the night, and we're told that there is the great cry. There is great wailing in Egypt. And interestingly, that word for cry or wail, it's the same word used back in Exodus 2 for the cry of the Israelites under slavery, under oppression. The Israelites were wailing, groaning, crying out to God in the midst of their oppression. Now it's the, Israelite, the Egyptians turn to cry out to God or to their own gods because of what has happened. There's this strange reversal of fortunes that's gone on here. The Israelites were crying out and now the Egyptians are crying out at the loss of their sons and daughters at the hand of God. So Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron. He drives them out and the Israelites leave that very night after taking gold and silver from the homes of their Egyptian neighbors. They leave, they grab what they can and they go. And from then on, Passover continues to be a reminder of the drama of that night and the incredible rescue that God brought about that night. It's interesting when you look at the history of Israel then through the Old Testament, Passover was not kept consistently. For some years it was, and then when Israel got into the land, through the time of the judges and most of the kings, Passover slipped away. It's like one of the first things to go when Israel became unfaithful to God was this meal, was this remembrance of God. They lost the story. They lost hold of the central story that told them they were a free people. And that was related to their faithlessness toward God. But then you get to King Josiah and he renews it. He finds the law. He brings Israel back again and they celebrate the Passover. This great act of national renewal is accompanied by the restoration of the Passover. And then after a period of time, Passover lapses again. And Israel goes into exile. But when they come back from exile under Israel, he reestablishes the Passover. As he brings Israel back, as they celebrate, as they worship, as they reaffirm the law, the other great thing that goes along with that is they, they celebrate Passover together again. Times of national renewal in Israel's life, are often accompanied by the celebration of Passover because it brought that story, that central story of God's redemption and God's sacrifice back front and center for Israel. And then from the time of the exile onwards, as far as we know, Passover continued to be an annual celebration right through the New Testament time, right down to today. Jews continue to celebrate the Passover every year today. But interestingly, in those years following Israel's exile and through the time of Jesus, The Passover meal took on a particular significance because during those years, in those centuries, Israel celebrated the Passover as an occupied people. They were under the control of the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans, worst of all. That was the setting for Jesus' life. They were under the occupation of the Romans. So you imagine, here's a Jewish family sitting around at Passover Eating the lamb and the herbs and the bread and celebrating this great story of God's freedom and God's delivered us and we're a free people. And yet the Roman soldiers are outside the door and stationed around the city. And Rome is in charge and they're an occupant. They're not free at all. So there's a strange irony here. They're celebrating their freedom and yet they've lost their freedom again. Politically speaking, they are not free. And so Passover became this time as they're celebrating freedom and they're eating these bitter herbs, reminding them of how bad it was back in Egypt. They're they're tasting the bitterness now. They're still experiencing the bitterness of Rome and the bitterness of being under the boot of this mighty empire. And it bred into them this longing again to be free, a longing for God to do something new, to bring about a new Passover so that he would free them from this tyranny, from this oppression. Passover, in the time of Jesus, became not just looking back to the first exodus. It became looking forward to God's future redemption, for God to step in again, for God to strike down their enemies again, for God to liberate Israel again and make them a great nation and give them back their national independence. Passover became this freedom cry. And so, in the time of Jesus, it was often accompanied by riots, and protests because tempers were running high. And people would have these little uprisings and try and overthrow the Romans, at least in their little village or city or in Jerusalem or wherever it was. And and there was all this tension around Passover. It was so politically charged. The Romans would bring in more reinforcements for that time because they knew it was a week in the Jewish calendar when the Jews would you know, maybe try something. People would just get a little bit too wound up and the Romans would come in and stamp it down. So this is the setting into which Jesus came. It's a strange situation. Last year I was in Israel, and uh, we were there during the month of Ramadan. Ramadan's happening now, again, the Islamic festival. And it was, it was a particular time of tension because you've got Ramadan going on, and then at the same time, all the violence in Gaza that was happening in the middle of last year. So on the final night of Ramadan, which is the climactic night, last day of the, of the festival, or the observance, We didn't know this was happening at the time. We were just sleeping in our hotel room. But the next morning we woke up and found that overnight, that night, there'd been this uprising uh, in East Jerusalem. At one of the checkpoints between Palestine and Israel, those territories, a whole lot of Palestinians had massed at the checkpoint, massed on the border, tried to push through, and the Israeli Defense Force had come in and put down that little resistance. I think a couple of Palestinians were killed in that. So we, we woke up the next morning, and our hotel was completely surrounded by police. I've never seen so many police in one place at one time, totally surrounded. In fact, the police moved into the hotel next door to us just to use it as a base. They took it over. And this was just to bring in reinforcements and make sure this kind of resistance didn't get out of control. It's a strange twist of history because you have a similar situation in reverse to what Israel was experiencing in the first century. Today, for some Palestinian Muslims living in the occupied territories. Ramadan creates those same political tensions. It's a religious festival. It's a religious observance. But as an occupied people, it creates this longing for freedom, this longing for a home, this longing for statehood, and it brings that out and tempers flare and uprisings happen and violence sometimes spills over. Strangely enough, it's, it's very similar to what Israel was going through in the first century. The Jews knew what it was to be an occupied people living in Roman territory, even though it was their homeland. And their festival comes along, the festival of Passover. They're celebrating their freedom, and they're celebrating it as an occupied people. So it creates these tensions, this political fervor for national renewal and freedom. And that, too, spilled over into violence at times. So Jesus would have celebrated Passover. He probably celebrated it every year with his family, and Jewish men and Jewish boys, they were encouraged whenever they could to visit Jerusalem for Passover. And so he may have made that pilgrimage several times with his dad, and his brothers, coming down to Jerusalem, celebrating the Passover. And we know he celebrated it with his disciples. But there's one Passover in the Bible that is the most important Passover of all. And it's the Passover in the week that Jesus died. Did you know that Passover happened? In the week that Jesus died, no accident at all. This is the way God intended it to happen. One of the biggest clues we get in the Bible as to the meaning of Jesus' death is the fact that Jesus died on the day of Passover. That's incredibly significant, and the gospel writers, especially John, bear out the significance of that. But the night before that, Jesus is celebrating a meal with his disciples. And this was the week of Passover, It probably wasn't the full Passover meal at that stage because the day of Passover was the next day, the actual day that Jesus died. But it would have been like a Passover kind of event all part of the same festival, the same celebration. So Jesus is having this Passover meal with his disciples and at the end of that meal, he takes some bread and he says to them, this is my body, broken for you. And then he takes a cup of wine and says, this is my blood, poured out for you. What's Jesus doing? He's not just instituting a brand new meal, is he? He's not just doing something out of the blue because he thought this would be a good thing for the church to do for the next few thousand years. Jesus is carrying on a tradition that had already been going for 1,500 years. But he's placing himself in the middle of it. So Jesus is carrying on the Passover, but he's now saying this meal is all about me. It always pointed to Jesus, and it finds its fulfillment and its completion in Jesus. That's why the next day, Jesus, the Passover lamb, was sacrificed. And it's likely that when Jesus went to the cross and when he died, it was about the time when in Jerusalem, all the Passover lambs were being sacrificed, were being killed. Right at that time, around about twilight, on the day of Passover, as the physical animal lambs were being slaughtered for Passover, Jesus takes his last breath and dies on the cross as the true Passover lamb. And through his death, and by explaining it a little the night before, Jesus tells us, he is now the Passover lamb and his blood has become the true Passover sacrifice. So in a greater way, his blood does for us what the Passover lamb's blood did for the Israelites. Jesus' blood becomes a sacrifice his blood is shed, His blood is poured out on the cross, and His life flows to us. Life flows to us from the cross, and it's a much greater life than was ever given through animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Hebrews tells us, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs can never take away sin. Those, those sacrifices, the, the sacrifice of the lamb in the Old Testament, that, that created a physical protection. That ensured the physical safety of the Israelite children that night, and that's what was needed. But Jesus dies as the Passover lamb and provides life in the truest, fullest, deepest sense for us. Not just a ceremonial kind of life, not just a ritual, not just a physical life, but true spiritual life in the deepest part of us. That's the life of Christ that flows to us because of His sacrifice on the cross. His righteous life flooding into our life because of His blood shed for us. His perfect life flowing to us because His blood was shed and He died. His holy life coming to fill up our utterly unholy lives because of His sacrifice. His identity coming in to take over our identity because His blood has been shed. The fullness of His life, the fullness of His whole and perfect and pure life, Flooded our lives and filled up our brokenness and woundedness because Christ is our Passover lamb. His blood was shed for us and his sacrifice is sufficient. It's once for all. It's the final, it's the only one that's ever going to be required. There is no need for any more sacrifices because Christ, our Passover lamb has come and his life is totally sufficient. So full doesn't just cleanse us outwardly. Hebrews says it purges us. It purges our conscience from acts that lead to death. And it creates true, eternal life within us. That's what Christ has done on the cross for us as our Passover lamb, as our sacrifice. Death for him, so that there could be life for us. As we who only deserve death, he has brought us life and life everlasting. And he not only died... As the Passover lamb, he died as the firstborn son of God. And this, I think, gives meaning to why God took the lives of the firstborn in Egypt. He took the life of every firstborn so that he would spare the life of his true son, Israel. And God calls Israel his son in the Old Testament. He says through Moses to Pharaoh, let my son go. Israel was God's son, God's firstborn son. So God takes the Egyptian lives in order to spare the life and protect the life of His son Israel. But on the cross, He does exactly the opposite. On the cross, God does not spare the life of His firstborn son, but He allows His firstborn son to be killed. And He does it so that we would have life. He does it to save the lives of us who have no right to be called children of God. We've got no entitlement. We're not God's children. We're not God's sons and daughters, naturally speaking. But Christ is, and He was sacrificed so we could be brought into the family. That's why the Bible says Christ is now the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. He's our elder brother. He's the ultimate sacrifice for us, but we also look up to Him as our elder brother, the one who laid down His life for us so we could become children of God brothers and sisters together in God's family. That's what Christ has done. God didn't spare the life of his own firstborn son but gave him up for us so we could be included in this family. Doesn't it just give you a beautiful picture of the cross? Doesn't it make you grateful for what God has done for us there and the depth of meaning that that event has in the whole of the biblical story? So Passover keeps on being celebrated and it's celebrated today. And Jews will gather every year And celebrate Passover and remember that same story of the Exodus. But I want to say this as respectfully as I can. If Passover is taken and it doesn't lead you to Jesus, you're missing the point. If the Passover meal only gets you as far as the Exodus story, you're missing the fulfillment of that meal in Christ. Because the whole thing points to Jesus. It was always all about Jesus. That's why, you know, some Christians participate in Jewish Passover meals, and that, I think that can be a good thing, can be a healthy thing. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to share in an actual Jewish Passover meal, participate in it as a Christian Passover. Not just solely a Judaistic Passover that only goes as far as the Exodus story because as Christians, as new covenant believers, we know that was just a shadow of what's to come. So celebrate it respectfully, but celebrate it as as a Christian Passover and look at how all of these elements, and there's many today, the Passover's kind of evolved, there's many parts of the meal, but look at how all these elements beautifully foreshadow the completed work of Christ. Our Passover lamb. That's how we should celebrate it. And in fact, we do have our own little Passover meal that we have every single Sunday. It's called communion. And that's a Passover meal. I don't know whether you realize that, but when we take communion in a couple of minutes, we are it's not some brand new thing. It's not something that started with Jesus. It's a continuation of Passover. And we need to think of it as a Passover kind of meal. We today are taking it's a pretty meager little meal. Just a wafer and some grape juice. Today you actually get a tortilla, I think. But it's pretty measly. And yet, here is a tradition we participate in that goes back three and a half thousand years now. Celebrated annually and now, now, in our context, weekly. As a Passover meal. So as you take communion, you know Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But our remembrance shouldn't just go back to the cross. It should go back another 1,500 years past that in history, right back to the exodus. Allow yourself, as you take communion, to let your mind go all the way back, all the way back to that night in Egypt when the, when the Lord passed over those homes, saw the blood, and passed by because a sacrifice has made. That gives us a much deeper appreciation for what God has done for us in this meal of communion and how Jesus comes as a fulfillment of that. Passover gives us the backdrop on which we can see the drama of redemption being played out. So do this in remembrance of him. Do this in remembrance of the whole big story. But communion also has a present meaning for us as well. Us, we Protestants, are quite good at remembering the past. We're not quite so good at the present dimension of communion. But it's very much a present thing. Jesus stood before his disciples and said, this is my body, broken for you. Take it and eat it. He said, this is my blood poured out for you take it and eat it he offered himself to his disciples in the present and allowed them to share in what he was about to do and the same jesus who said those words is with us here today not just as a past memory he's here he's here in power he's here with his with the fullness of his presence and he stands before us just as he did to his disciples and says take and eat take and drink the most powerful memory that i've got of taking communion in a church context was in a high church tradition, in an Anglican church. And it was because I came to take the bread and the juice and there was someone, there was actually a person offering it to me. And as I took it, they said to me, the body of Christ. As I took the cup, they said, the blood of Christ. And there was something about hearing those words that enabled me to hear that as Jesus speaking to me in the present. Not that they were Jesus, but just to hear through them, This is Jesus offering this to me now. It's not just a symbol of a past event. This is Jesus here in the present saying, my life's available to you now. Now, I don't believe that means the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Christ. That's the Catholic view. But still, Jesus makes himself available to us through these elements in a strange kind of way. He takes something very ordinary, bread and juice, and they become a sacrament. That means there are means of grace. There are means by which Christ nourishes you in the present with His grace, the means by which He releases his love afresh into your life, by which he releases fresh power into your life, a means by which he releases fresh peace into your life. He's chosen to do this through communion. So the practice of communion is exactly what it says. It is a means of drawing you into communion with the living God, in the present. It creates communion between Father, Son and Spirit and you drawn into that beautiful relationship. So one of the most important practices for your spiritual growth is the practice of the Lord's Supper. You know, we typically think of Bible study, prayer. You know, communion's like way down the line, but communion is absolutely central. The practice of gathering and of sharing the Lord's Supper It is one of the ways in which God will grow you in your spiritual life and foster a deeper communion between you and Him because this is how He's ordained it. This is how He's leading us back into the story. And as we ingest the bread and the wine, we're ingesting again the work of Christ and life flows to us again from the table. Life flows to us through Christ from the table. So wherever you're at in your spiritual life, if it's grace that you need to be reminded of, if it's fresh peace, fresh empowering of the Holy Spirit, that's all available through the meal of communion. And it makes it incredibly significant. And finally, communion has a future dimension too. Because Jesus said when he gave the cup, he said, I'm not going to share this Passover meal with you again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of heaven. He pointed us forward. And he said, this is like a little entree. It's a pretty meager entree. And it's just a taste of the banquet that is coming when Jesus returns. When Christ returns, there's going to be a final Passover, great Passover meal where we will finally be completely free, free from sin, free from any temptation, free from the struggles, trials, difficulties, hardships, stresses, and anxieties of this life. All that's going to be behind us, and we'll sit at the banquet table with Jesus, just enjoying the fullness of his peace, his shalom in our lives. What a day. And Jesus said, every time you take this meal, you remember that. That day's coming. Every time we take communion, it's one less time before that day. One less time before Jesus returns. And we should allow this meal to pull our hearts forward and say, come, Lord Jesus. Come and take away the brokenness. Come and take away the suffering. Come, Lord Jesus, and redeem your world. Come, Lord Jesus, and reclaim your good world because he is coming. He's coming back again. And this meal reminds us of that. So as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever you call it, allow your mind and heart to go back to the first Passover when God redeemed his people from Egypt. And allow yourself to retrace the great story because we're a part of that story. Allow yourself to experience again the great true Passover that happened on the cross. The one that purchased your salvation And allow yourself to just have that fresh gratitude for what has been done for you there. And allow yourself to anticipate the final Passover that's coming when Jesus returns. That past, present, future dimension. We can experience the whole panorama of communion. Because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. So let's eat and drink together with glad and sincere hearts.